before we begin, something really interesting happened uh, during this recording. I was recording it in front of a live audience in Temple Beth Torah. It's one of the synagogues that we partner with. In the middle of the recording, in the middle of the class, there was a fire drill or there would be smelled something like um, uh, it smelled like uh, something burning. So we all had to leave the facility and we finished the class outside. So if the recording sounds a little bit funny or in the middle, you hear maybe a little bit of a commotion or you hear a lot of ambient noise at the end, that's because we actually had to leave the premises, leave the facility, and we finished the class in the parking lot outside. So it might not sound as good, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Mitzvah number 34 is the first of the second set of tablets. We know the first tablets are the first five of the Ten Commandments. The second tablet had the second of the five, and it is a pretty straightforward commandment, lo sertzach, thou shall not murder. And I find this mitzvah very fascinating because, you know, the Torah dedicates a grand total of two words to it. It seems like it's pretty straightforward. Don't murder someone. And obviously there are some cases where killing another person is in fact a requirement. For example, the Torah tells us that there are certain cases of capital punishment. People do some uh, egregious heinous sins, they are executed in the Jewish court of law. The Jewish court of law believes in capital punishment. And now, of course, it's important to stress that it almost never happened because there's all kinds of ordinances in place to prevent it, to try to find acquittal and to try to get the guy off the hook. But nevertheless, there is the concept of capital punishment where that would not be a transgression of murder because that's not murder. That is to kill someone who you're supposed to kill. Murder is when you kill someone you're not supposed to kill. Another example where you're supposed to kill someone is in the case of a rodef. Rodef means a pursuer, meaning someone is in the act of trying to either kill someone else or to, God forbid, rape, rape someone else or things like that, where the Torah tells us that we're allowed to prevent a tragedy by preempting it and killing the would-be perpetrator. Uh, an example of this, by the way, the Talmud tells us that there is a concept called a moser, meaning an informer. When someone is going to inform the bad guys about either someone else's transgression or someone else's financial situation, there's an assumption that once the bad guys have information that they could use, that would eventually lead to the death of the victim. And therefore, you could prevent an informer under certain circumstances from continuing with his informery by even killing him. There's a famous story in the Talmud, in the book of Baba Kama, page 117a, about Rav Kahana. Rav Kahana was one of the greatest sages in the Talmudic era. He was in Babylon. It's one of the early Talmudic era sages. And there was an informer. And the informer was going to inform the government about someone else's money. And the, the, the way this would work is that this guy, is, he's, he's evading taxes and he has all this grain that he's not telling you about. And he would tell the government and the government would come and say, okay, where's, where's the grain? He'd give them the grain. Where's the rest of it? And eventually they kill him. Rav Khan says, you better not do it. You better not do it. You better not do it. The guy says, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Rav Khan touches a stick, a stick and hits him on his head and he kills him to prevent the, uh, the informer from continuing uh, to pass on that message. And then after all, he just killed someone, so he has to escape, and it's a very long and intricate and exciting and tragic story of what happens to him because he's now he's in Babylon, and he has to hightail 
abscond out of there and he ends up in Israel and what he does there and what he has to do there and what he ends up doing there is a quite a thrilling story. Check it out, Baba Kama 117A going into 117B. That said, that's another example of where someone will be allowed to uh, kill someone else, even another Jew, and that would be sanctioned. And of course, that's not included in thou shalt not murder. Murder means a a, uh, a, an, a killing of someone who is – you're not allowed to kill. Obviously, in the case of war, now usually there aren't Jews on either side. But for example, during World War One, there were Jews on both sides of the trenches. Sadly, Jews fighting for this team and that team. And this is another example of, of warfare where killing the enemy who's trying to kill you is something that you're allowed to do. And in fact, you're, you have to do under certain circumstances. That's all not included in Lo Sirzach, thou shall not murder. Thou shall not murder includes murdering someone who you're not allowed to kill. So it seems like it's pretty straightforward. Now, what you find when you say the Talmud is that this is a great example of the necessity for oral Torah. You have two words in the Torah, thou shalt not murder, straightforward. There are some exceptions like we mentioned, but it's straightforward. You cannot kill anyone, you can't murder someone who is not included on in, in one of those categories, one of those sanctioned, so to speak, categories. Pretty straightforward. You open up the Talmud, you open up the Rambam, and you see pages and pages of details about the exact application of this law. So I think it's very interesting that there's voluminous analysis in the oral Torah when in our eyes, at least upon initial assessment, it would seem that it's it's pretty straightforward. So let's, let's dig into this mitzvah and see what the sages say and uh, see some of the various laws related to it. Now, like we do with every mitzvah, we try to understand to the best of our ability the reason why we have this mitzvah. And this one, it doesn't really need any explanation. Just like the first mitzvah of the Torah, be fruitful and multiply, the world can only have continuity, the will of God, that, that we have a world with humanity, with people, that is predicated upon people existing, and therefore we're told to, pro- to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. And the exact opposite of that is when someone tries to sort of intervene and try to uh, end someone else's life in a way that is not a pro, not, uh, that's not approved, and that is the uh, the ab- absolute antithesis of the will of God, and therefore it's such an egregious crime. In fact, there are seven Noahide laws, meaning laws that are not limited to the Jews. You know, the Torah, the base of the Torah, is just for the Jews. It's it's mitzvahs that we got at Sinai where elevated to uh, a holy people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is like for us. You know, we want to live with God. We want to live a higher level. Everyone else, well, they're not obligated by Torah. They don't need to keep Shabbos and they don't need to do any of the things that were commanded by the Torah, with the exception of seven. There are seven Noahide laws, meaning all descendants of Noah are governed by these laws. These laws are universal. How can we have universal laws? How can we have mitzvot that apply to everyone. After all, we got the Torah, they didn't. So how are they even supposed to know that they need to abide by these seven Noahide laws? The Ramam tells us the answer is that you don't need divine instruction to know these things. These are things that will be included in natural law. These are things that you can figure out on your own. These are things that are needed to have a functioning society. Any civilization is predicated upon the baseline of these seven Noahide laws. It's easy to understand. You don't need to understand it. By dint of being a human and having a mind, you're capable of picking this up on your own. And as we see, every society 
or we could say almost every society uh, has in, in, in the course of history has had this as one of its most baseline laws, not to murder innocents. Now, I think there's a way to kind of open up the Talmudic discussion on this subject is to try to differentiate between two different types of murder. Like we said, murder is one of the capital crimes, like they say here in Texas, God forbid someone kills someone, we'll kill you back, right? Even in America, the idea of capital punishment is really only given to, I guess, to treason and to murder. There's really nothing else that is covered, to my knowledge. And in Judaism, too, there is capital punishment given to a murder. However, the Talmud makes it clear, and the Rambam codifies that there's different levels of murder, one of them is liable for the death penalty, and one of them is not liable for the death penalty unless there are extenuating circumstances, as we shall see. And I think this is just interesting to see like how many questions we could have or how many dilemmas that we could have in something that seems to be so clear-cut and so cut and dried. Don't murder simple, what's there to talk about? And we'll see, well, there is something to talk about. And it kind of makes sense. And these questions, we wouldn't really know. We'd have to grapple with it if we didn't have the companion oral instructions. So the Ram starts off chapter two of the laws of murder. And the reason why we use the Ramam is because he's going to collect all the sources from the Talmud, but everything he says is sourced in the Talmud. And he starts off, as we would imagine, whoever kills his friend with his hand, like he hits him with a knife or with a stone in a way that kills him, or he chokes him, he asphyxiates him until he dies, he burns him in a fire. If he killed him in any way, he himself did it. Behold, the murderer is executed in a court of law. However, what if someone hires an assassin to kill his friend, or someone sends his servants to go kill someone else. Or what if, interesting case, the Talmud talks about this, the Talmud has a whole page in the book of Sanhedrin with all these very unusual cases where we would have to kind of say, oh, I don't know, is that real murder? Is that kind of a, a conspiracy to commit murder? Is that, are you aiding it? It's so interesting case. So like I said, hire an assassin. Again, you didn't actually pull the trigger, but you hired someone. So you contributed towards the person dying, but you didn't actually do it. Is that is that the same thing? Uh, or this case, you tie someone up, but there's a loose lion. And the lion comes and eats the person who cannot escape because he's tied up. What an interesting case. Yes, there's intent to commit murder, but by the Torah standards, it's not just intent. You know, if I have intention to kill everyone in the world, but I don't do anything, I sit in my house playing PlayStation. Am I a murderer? I had intent. Yes, you had intent, but did you kill him? Seems like the lion killed him, but you kind of contributed to it. So what's that case? Interesting. The Talmud goes on to say, uh, the Ramah goes on to say, well, what if someone commits suicide? So they killed someone who wasn't guilty, but they killed themselves. So the, so the victim and the perpetrator is, is the same person. Is that okay? Is that, what's the status of such a person? All these cases, all these kind of in-between cases where it's, yes, it's murder of some sort, but it's not the same thing, says the Ramam, this person's a murderer. And he's someone who spilled blood. And he's someone who has the sin of murder in his hands. And he is liable to be executed by God. But we don't punish him in a court of law. 
So I'm telling us is that there's different levels. He's a murderer, yes, and he spilled blood, yes, and he's guilty, yes, and God would kill him, yes, but we don't we don't do it. It's the Jewish court of law, the the human, the terra firma court of law doesn't judge all these murderers with the same severity that a, a full fledged murder or the the standard case of murder, one person actually kills another person. So you're guilty, but you're not guilty enough to be executed. Unless, as we shall see. And then he goes on to say, interesting, however, because you actually, after all, you are a murderer, and the sin of murder is in your hands, and you're guilty to God, and you're a bloodshedder. These people, they're not guilty uh, to the degree they can be judged in a court of law. But let's say there was a Jewish king. And the king, in his capacity as someone who is trying to oversee the populace, he can choose to extrajudicially execute such a person. If he feels that there is a spate of murders, and therefore he wants to go above and beyond and say even someone who's conspiring or hiring an assassin or even someone who does all these other lower levels of murder, he could execute you if he deems it necessary. Similarly, if the court, if the Sanhedrin feels like there's a need to tighten up these laws or to, to rein in the society, society has gotten a little bit too violent, they too would be entitled, in fact, maybe even mandated, to actually execute someone who is a lower class murderer, meaning someone who murders someone else or effectuates the murder but doesn't actually pull the trigger, hires the assassin, ties him up. The Talmud talks about stories of someone who gets tied up and then they die of hunger, tied up, but then the sun comes, uh, tied up in a place where there's not a lot of oxygen. All these cases where someone kind of brings about someone else dying but doesn't actually kill them. And if they cannot be classified as full-fledged murderers and be executed as a result, then the king or the court can take the necessary steps if the times demand for it to actually execute them. However, if someone is not killed by the king and is not killed by the court, still they are punished because they are, after all, a murderer. Trump tells us that the court is responsible to hit them, to beat them up, to, to punish them, to maybe even incarcerate them for many years and to cause them tremendous pain in order to intimidate and to frighten the rest of the sinners, the rest of the wicked people, that this should not happen, that people shouldn't hire assassins, get around, oh, hire an assassin and solve my problem. No, this is not okay. You're still a murderer. We may even kill you. And if we don't kill you, we'll punish you very severely. Again, they have the discretion to what they need to do, but the Ramam's um, his his tone is, is very harsh here to even incarcerate them for many years and to cause them all kinds of pain in order to prevent uh, copycats and to remove such a, a stumbling block from our nation to not allow people to circuitously murder in a way that they could be uh, okay. So that's the general idea that there's two kinds of levels of murder. At least there's two kinds of murder. murder. There's a murder which is, which is actually capital punishment which means that the person has to actually pull the trigger and cause the death and no intervening factors. And then there's all these other cases, lower level of murder, still murder, and could be executed under certain circumstances, but certainly punished as a murderer uh, if the person is not, if the perpetrator is not actually executed. 
Now, there is an entire uh, other wing of this discussion, and that is what is the nature of the victim? So who's the victim in the story to render the murderer a murderer? So Ram tells us that it doesn't matter if the person is really old, if the person is really young, that victim is a victim worthy of rendering the murderer a murderer, male, female, a one-day-old child. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If the person kills him, that would render them a murderer. So you are guilty if you kill any person, regardless of how old they are. However, the law states that if there is someone who was born premature and we don't know if they're going to live or they're going to die, that baby, so to speak, might be considered not a full-fledged human because maybe they're going to die anyhow. And there's a general idea that someone cannot be considered the highest level of a murderer if the person that they're killing is going to die anyhow. So this is very relevant to the question of euthanasia. You have an instance where someone is uh, terminally ill and they're going to die based upon other factors. And someone who expedites the, the death is considered a murder by all standards of, of Jewish law. The question is, is it, it's not the same highest level of murder. It's a lower level of murder because the person was going to die anyhow. And therefore, they'd be on that kind of tier two where they're a murder, but not quite a murder that's able to be executed in a Jewish court of law. Now, there's different levels of what it means to be someone who is terminally ill. There's something called a trefa, which means that they have a, uh, an, a illness or an injury that will necessitate they'll be dead within a year. So the punctured lungs, things like that, many other examples. Someone's a gosace, which is a different uh, level, someone who is actually in the throes of dying. And the Ram differentiates between someone who is in the throes of dying either because of natural causes or because of non-natural causes. And there's a really interesting case. Again, these are all big subjects. Thomas spends a lot of time in it and all the sources and all the situations, scenarios, but we're trying to give a little brief overview here. Uh, Thomas says something really interesting. What if – Someone is a trefa, meaning that they're going to die anyhow within a year, and they're the murderer. Can they be executed? Now, by initial assessment, the answer would be, of course, what's the difference? Why can't they be executed? But there is a principle that you need to have witnesses in order to do any execution, but the witnesses also have to be witnesses that can be falsified, meaning you can bring contrary evidence to prove that these are false witnesses. So in order for witnesses to have weight, to have validity, they have to be falsifiable, it means it's possible to bring evidence to the contrary. Now what happens if there's false witnesses? The false witnesses get what they wanted to inflict. So says the Talmud in a brilliant insight that we wouldn't get Talmud says that the general principle is, again, the witnesses are only valid when the witnesses are falsifiable. In this case, where the witnesses are testifying against against a trefa, against someone who is already almost dead, is this falsifiable witnesses? Well, is it or is it not? Because the general rule is false witnesses get what they wanted to inflict. Can they get what they wanted to inflict? Two witnesses come and say, well, this guy, who's a traitor, who's about to die anyhow, he committed murder. So let's say they're false. Let's say they're liars. They wanted to have this individual, this murderer, 
They wanted to have him killed. Really, he shouldn't have gotten killed. But they wanted someone who was already half dead to be killed. And therefore, it wouldn't be fair to kill them if they were false witnesses because it's not equal. They wanted to inflict murder or the death sentence on someone who was already half dead and they're not dead at all. So therefore, they can't be falsified. And if they can't be falsified, then they can't be believed either. So in the instance where someone is a trefa, meaning they're going to die anyhow, and they murder someone, that case cannot be adjudicated in a court of law with the only exception of when the murder happens in front of the court and therefore there is no need for testimony, no need for witnesses, then it would be a way for such a person to be executed. But otherwise, this person cannot be executed because the witnesses cannot be falsified and witnesses when witnesses cannot be falsified, witnesses can't be believed either. Really interesting case. Now, I want to quickly run through some of the other interesting cases related to other scenarios where it's a question of of how severe this particular case is. So again, we talked about this earlier. Someone who ties up his friend, the friend dies of hunger. So what killed him? The hunger. But what effectuated that was being tied up. Uh, being tied up in a place where the sun will come or the coldness will come. What if someone unleashes the snake, the snake comes and bites them, or the dog comes and bites them? All these cases are lower-level cases where they are not executed, but they're still a murderer and God will take care of them, etc., etc., etc. Similarly, the Ram says, what if someone throws someone else into a pit? But what else is in the pit? There's also a ladder to get out of the pit. And the person either doesn't take the ladder or someone else takes away the ladder. Or... Someone, really interesting case here, someone shoots an arrow at his friend, but the friend's holding a shield. And a second person comes and swipes away the shield. And the arrow punctures the victim. So you have two people here. You know, the guy shot the guy, but the guy had a shield. And that would have deflected the projectile. The other guy, all he did was swipe away a shield. That's not murder. Swiping away a shield is not murder. But those two acts together create the victim being dead. Both of these cases are, are people, again, lower-level murderers. They can't be executed in a Jewish court of law. And the Ramam again reiterates, but God will take care of them. God will uh, ensure that their, uh, that their crimes are accounted for. Now, there's a very interesting, unique law related to a murderer. And as we've mentioned in the past, to actually push a case through a Jewish court of law to result in the execution of the criminal is very difficult. Talmud says that a Jewish court that executes someone once every seven or even every 70 years, well, they're a very murderous court because they're not doing their job. Their job is to try to turn over the entire world, leave no stone unturned to try to find acquittal for uh, for the accused. In fact, there's a mitzvah. The mitzvah states, let the congregation, meaning the court, let them find acquittal for the accused. However, there's a problem. You know, we don't want to execute. We want, let, let leave it to God. But if there's a murderer, well, that's something you really want to avoid. So if the guy's, I don't know, doing idolatry, so what's the end of the world? They let them do idolatry. So we won't kill him because he got so on all these technicalities and, and we have to try to find acquittal for him. People don't suffer. But if you have a murderer, people do suffer. So therefore, there are unique laws in place to prevent a murderer from perpetrating 
his evil, even when they cannot be technically executed in the court of law. So, for example, what if the witnesses are somehow faulty? So the law states that in order for someone to be processed in a court of law, in a capital crime case, you need to have two witnesses. Moreover, the witnesses have to see the act together. So there's all kinds of ways that via some sort of technicality, the witnesses are not valid, but we know they both saw the murder. It wasn't together. It was one after another, or they didn't warn the person properly. So the law states that in order for someone to be actually executed in a Jewish court of law, there has to be warning ahead of time. So let's say the witnesses witnessed everything, but they didn't warn them in a way that was uh, sufficient, or the witnesses tripped up in cross-examination. So the law states that the court has to examine the validity of the testimony, and what if they trip up? So for example, one person says it was kind of sunny outside, no one says, no, it was kind of cloudy outside. They don't remember. It might have been a little some time ago. They, they're, they're, all the crucial details they agree upon, but they disagree upon some of the, what we would consider immaterial, but enough to get rid of their testimony from the court itself. But we still know the guy's guilty. So this creates a very unique situation wherein we have a murderer. We know he's guilty. We can't kill him. Are we allowed to put him back on the streets? That would seem to be problematic. So the Talmud tells us that there is a unique situation that applies over here, and that is that we can kill him technically, but let's find a way to kill him. Let's find a way to execute him. So what they do is they incarcerate this person and they place him in a, a small cell and they manipulate his diet in a way that'll kill him. How so? First, they withhold food from him so their stomach constricts. After the stomach constricts, they give them certain foods that expand their stomach, bread that expands, or oats, things like that. That way, those stomach warts will explode. Uh, So essentially, we have something very unique here wherein, in the case of murder, there's a departure from the usual draconian methods of determining guilt in a Jewish court of law. Here, we have this circuitous way to kill him, even though we can't kill him. And the Ram tells us, why is this applied only to a murder? No other crimes, even idolatry, desiccating the Shabbos, no other crimes do we have this way of working, wherein we will kill the guy, even though we can't kill him. So he says, this is the worst sin of them all. There's nothing worse than it. It destroys the world. This is the same between man and one's fellow. Whoever has the sin within them, they're a completely wicked person. And all the mitzvahs they do their entire life cannot possibly be equal to this grievous sin. And they can't be helped in judgment. And he goes on and on and on, talking about how terrible the sin is, as we know. There are three cardinal sins, meaning sins that we have to even forfeit our lives to not transgress, murder, rape, and idolatry. One of them, of course, is is murder. It's one of those things that no matter what, you can't do it, even if it means forfeiting your life. Now, there is another component to this idea, and that is what we would call call spiritual murder. The Talmud tells us that it's preferable for someone 
to cast themselves into an iron furnace than to embarrass someone publicly. And the Talmud explains that when someone gets embarrassed, their face is initially flushed, they turn white, and then they turn red, and that's the equivalent of having the blood drained from their face. That's like murder, and therefore, just like we can't kill someone, we can't embarrass someone publicly, that too has carries that weight. And in fact, this would be considered amongst the big three. Just like you can't do one of the three cardinal sins to save your life, it seems quite clear, at least according to some of the commentaries, you would not be allowed to embarrass someone publicly, even if it means forfeiting your life. The final item that we need to discuss with respect to murder is the question of abortion, meaning the murder or the killing or the aborting of an unborn child. So this is a very a complicated and controversial subject, not just in politics, but in, in, in Torah. I think what is important to say what we know, what, what we know, what we agree upon. The Mishnah tells us in the book of Ahalos, there's two extremes. Extreme A is when the child or the baby or the fetus or the embryo or the zygote or whatever is in somehow threatening the life of the mother. In that case, no one contests that the mother's life takes precedent and we would kill the baby or abort the baby or murder the baby, whatever language you want to use, we would get rid of the child to save the mother. So the very kind of what we would say the, the most religious perspective that we have in American politics Life begins at conception, the baby's life, or the fetus, or the zygote, or the embryo's life, is equivalent to the mother. That's not a Jewish position, it's not a Torah position. If the mother's life is in danger, and the child is still within her, the mother's life takes precedence. Uh, the mission is quite clear, if the mother's life is in danger, even if we suspect it's in danger, the doctor says it's in danger, whatever it may be, we are obligated, uh, the Talmud uses very gory descriptions, if you want to see it, you can look at it yourself. It's the book of Ahalos. I believe it's chapter 7. I think it's Mishnah 7. I haven't re- saw, seen that recently, but I think it said it. It describes in very macabre detail what we have to do to save the mother. The mother's life is of a higher stature than the baby's life, so long as the baby is inside. However, once the baby sticks his head's out, even if the rest of the body is still inside, if the head is out... That will be a case of Ein Dochem Nefesh Bim Nefesh. We do not cast aside one soul to save a second soul. In that case, there will be equivalence between the mother and the child. And therefore, if the child's life now causes a threat to the mother, we would not be allowed to kill the child because the child's alive. As to the state of abortion in the case where it's not causing a threat to the mother or not causing a tangible threat or what kind of threat it is or what if the baby, God forbid, is ill or we know the child has Tay-Sachs, God forbid, or Down syndrome. That's a very difficult question. According to some opinions, this is a case of murder, not the case of murder with the highest level of murder, not the case of murder that's executable, but a lower level of murder. According to others, it's not a case of murder and therefore there's more wiggle room, so to speak, in the case of, let's say, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, Tay-Sachs. It's a very complex and controversial halachic query, and there is very legitimate halachic authorities on both sides 
giants, and there is enough literature on the subject to fill an entire bookshelf. It's a very complex situation, and it's a very sensitive situation, but we're just trying to cover the basics to give a basic survey of this discussion. This was a pleasure to talk about, to debate, to discuss, and to finish it out outside in the comfort of the parking lot. Uh, thank God we survived this stair. It looks like, uh, it looks like there, there isn't a fire. Thank God. But, uh, so that's a general overview. Like we said, it's a simple mitzvah in the Torah. Two words. Don't, don't murder. The parameters, the details, situations, scenarios are varied and, uh, fascinating. And I think a good example of the indispensability of the oral Torah to understand what the Torah wants of us.